0: at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.
1: It is one Putin when you see him on a calendar. It's yet another Putin when he needs to arrest a snowman. Welcome
0: to the Democracy Paradox podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp. And I am your host as we explore the democracy paradox. Sergei Popovich is a well known activist who has championed nonviolent resistance movements. During the bulldozer revolution that overthrew Slobodan Milosevic, he was a leader of the student movement, Otpor. It was during that time that he experimented with pranks and humor to undermine the regime's legitimacy and build a powerful grassroots movement. More recently, Serge co-authored an article in the Journal of Democracy with Sophia McLennan and Joe Wright called "How to Sharpen a Nonviolent Movement." They argue a tactic known as dilemma actions can make nonviolent movements even more effective. It's an approach Serja practiced as an activist in Serbia and has taught countless others through his organization, the Center for Applied Nonviolent Action and Strategies. Otherwise known as Canvas. Now, this podcast has talked about nonviolent movements in quite a few different episodes, but it often treats civil resistance as something that's almost monolithic. It's often easy to think of them as only protests. So, I wanted to understand how Dilemma Actions offered a distinct tactic for civil resistance campaigns and what made them so effective. Now, while you listen you can also follow along with a complete transcript at democracyparadox.com you'll also find additional blog posts past episodes and even a book list if you want to support the podcast even more you can make a one-time donation on the site or become a monthly contributor at patreon or even a premium subscriber at apple podcasts but for now here is my conversation with Serge Popovich. Serge Popovich, welcome to the Democracy Paradox.
1: Already feel welcome.
0: <laughs> Great. Well, Serja, your recent article in the Journal of Democracy is called How to Sharpen a Nonviolent Movement. It explains this concept called Dilemma Actions, which are such a powerful tool in civil resistance. And you yourself, have experience with Dilemma Actions, not just as an idea, but as somebody who's practiced them, who engaged with them directly. Can you tell me a little bit about your own first Dilemma Action and how it came about and why it clicked for you, why it made
1: sense? Oh Well, first of all, hello, great to be on this podcast. And of course, I'll start with anecdotes in my activist past. I was born in Belgrade in 1973. At the time, I was uh, playing in a rock band in my late teens. The bad guy named Slobodan Milosevic came to power. And people try various things to get rid of these guys. They tried protests. They even tried violence at some point. But the student movement that I was a part of, which launched in 1992, peaked around 1996, 1997. And then 1998 ended in formation of the movement called Otpor, which is a Serbian movement Actually, was having a humor and dilemma actually says it's signature part. How did we come to this? It's difficult to say. Serbs are learning by doing. So not like there was a manual we could read about this. I couldn't even imagine that 30 years ago. 30 years after that, I would team up with real professors and do the real research. So basically, humor works, pranks works. Serbs are cheerful people. And we figured out very early in the process, it was around 992. That making a street theater, which has the element of irony, is going to piss off the opponent. Uh, Milosevic was one of these great post-communist bureaucrats with no sense of humor. The first and probably best known signature dilemma action of a movement was called A Dime for Change. I'll explain it in detail just for people to get the idea. So here we are in this environment where you don't have a space to work. You want to do something, police will appear. They will not necessarily be violent. It's not going to be run. You're not going to be dead, but you'll be detained. It will be unpleasant. And certainly, whatever you plan to do, they're going to dismantle it. So we decided to do a kind of hit-and-run thing. We had uh, several designers and artists in our team. They designed a wonderful barrel. Like We got this very old petrol barrel and then painted really nicely into black so it looks new. And then there was a giant face of Milosevic on it, so probably three or four feet face so everybody could see who is that and it was a lovely cartoon artwork so it looks like him but it's not really him and things of that kind so here is this barrel there is a hole in the top so we brought the barrel in the main pedestrian district the belgrade equivalent of champs Elysees or fifth avenue and we invited people to put a dime in which kind of buys them the right to get the baseball bat well the serbian version of baseball bat we don't do baseball and then hit the barrel and so that was a kind of, you put the coin in, so you fund the movement. There is a fundraising element in it, but there is also a pinball element in it, so you buy your right to play. It's very playful. The people are expressing his love for Mr. President. The barrel clanks tremendously loud. There is a queue of 200 people waiting there. There are kids kicking the barrel, and you know, everybody has fun. So we drove to the position B, which is a nearby coffee shop. We order espresso, and we see what is going to happen. So now the police arrives, and this is where dilemma action really kicks in. So it is one thing to do the playful show. It's yet another thing to involve your opponent, not as an audience, but like the actors in the show. So what will police do? Obviously, they're trained to arrest whoever sparked the dissent, The people who sparked the dissent are not there. They have ordered to stop this show, but they don't have a means to because arresting people for hitting the barrel wasn't illegal. Once again, Serbia was not Iran at that point. So these people will probably be out within 15 minutes, some of them probably pressing charges against the police in case they were arrested. They're talking to their communicators. They look nervous. We observe the situation and have a lot of fun because it's happening, you know, downtown. It's like 200 people are around. The police is around. Everybody's teasing them. They look completely confused. And then they arrest the barrel. So now the barrel is arrested, the barrel is dragged to the police car. And of course, everybody takes the cameras and things of that kind. And we were evil enough to invite the journalists. So it ends up on a cover page of, at that time, the only Serbian opposition newspaper. So 350,000 people tomorrow morning can see this show. So now why this works and how it works, it's a different kind of things. But from there, we got addicted to it. And because we knew that whatever we do, the police will do exactly as we expect them to do, we kept uh, doing it over and over.
0: So when you talk about a dilemma action, the dilemma then is on the part of the state or on the part of the police or whoever the authority is
1: then, right? Well, dilemma is always the part of the game and you you want to engage your opponent. And when we were taking a look at this, and once again, I don't want to take credit for this, the serious academic lifting. Has been done by real academics, two people, Sophia McLennan and Joe Wright, both from Penn State University, and the real hard work of filing 400 cases, which is a lot of scientific work, was done by some amazing interns from Canvas, my organization, and the Penn State. But when you take a look into this, first of all, they work good in autocracy, and they seem to be more effective when they're challenging more autocratic opponent because there is a less of space; it's more likely they will do. This, you know, stupid thug play. But it works in many other cases. Dilemma actions historically has been used in almost every single type of struggle you can imagine, ranging from labor rights, women rights, LGBT rights, environment, whatever you can put your finger on. So it's not only autocracies. It really works well in all the other cases. And the pattern is you need to tackle the widely held belief. People in costumes on the street, they can be funny. But this is not a dilemma action. Dilemma action is only if it tackles the widely held belief. Why? Because it creates the dilemma for the opponent to do or not to do. The purpose of dilemma action is to put your opponent in a kind of a lose-lose scenario. So let's go to another place. Let's go to Russia. Barnaul, 2012, election stolen. People caught stuffing ballot boxes for Putin. He would win elections anyhow, but for some reasons, his officers decided that he needs to have more than 100% of vote. So they were doing this hard job of stuffing things, and then somebody tapes it, it's the era of mobile phone, protests erupt. So here is the little place in Barnaul, Siberia, where protests are banned. Putin lets them protest, he's a clever guy, Putin lets them protest in St. Petersburg and Moscow because he knows the cameras are there, outside, it's out of question. So because people cannot protest, this is the widely held belief, people have the right to protest. Their toys can protest. So now they bring their toys to the little square. There is a little toy rally. There is a little toy city. The toys are everywhere. They're holding the signs, calling for free and fair elections. And actual footage exists done by a Russian artist. You can find it on the Guardian website. And you see the day one, there is a 15, 20, 30 people. It's a very small place. And all of the three policemen are there as well. And everybody's taping. Everybody's having fun. There is no tension. There is no arrest. There is nothing like that. And the next thing you know, it goes online and it goes viral because obviously it's a good prank and people like it. So if you're crumbling, what will you do? So this imposes the dilemma for the opponent. If they let this thing go, they will look weak. Within the range of days, people will replicate the stuff. And part of our study is where the dilemma actions are replicated because it proves their effectiveness. And of course, because they want to crash the descent, they find a little hole in the pot and, you know, the phone rings for, to a chief of police of Barnaul. And the poor soul needs to go tomorrow because, you know, citizens want to do it tomorrow. And part of this is that people are enjoying it. And if you're enjoying something you're doing, you're more likely to repeat it. Once again, it's a human nature. And now the chief of police needs to ban the toy protest. And he needs to stand in the front of camera, literally read. That the protest of 150 legal people, 50 toy cars whatsoever is banned because the toys are not citizens of Russia. And by constitution, only citizens of Russia should protest. So here you are taking a choice between looking weak and looking really stupid or fearful. Or I mean, come on, take a look at this guy. This is Putin. This is a guy who loves to pose shirtless, riding on horses, uh, fishing, wrestling tigers, saving dolphins from drowning. And he's afraid of toys. So now how does this look for this guy? So part of our research is how dilemma actions influence authority. Authority of the movement because they dare to prank, they dare to do things, but also authority of the opponent. Because looking stupid doesn't really increase your authority.
0: So when you're talking about dilemma action, it's a decision then that the authorities have between. Either doing nothing and potentially undermining their authority or deciding to take action, which again undermines their authority because they're taking action in a way that people think looks ridiculous or looks somehow wrong in some kind of way. It doesn't feel like it's a strong state at the end of the day. The rules get questioned in a way that really kind of makes people think about it, even though it's oftentimes using humor, using pranks, using a very different strategy than what we normally think about when we think about protests and nonviolent movements.
1: Yes, this is a very important element of this. And as Sophia McLennan, who is in charge for comedy and irony and has the best job in the world, she needs to watch all of these late night shows and take a look at how, you know, SNL, how it impacts Trump and things of that kind. She really puts this well, because dilemma actions, and this also relates to the name of your show, it exposes the paradox. So here is this thing called Belarus. And within the thing called Belarus, you have a guy named Lukashenko, who, of course, claimed that, you know, it's all flowers and things of that kind. But there is also a ban in Belarus that if you gather more than five people, you need to declare a political rally. So everything more than five people is an unsanctioned gathering, or however it's named in a Belarusian language. So here are the people of Belarus, which are notorious for dilemma actions. I think we have 15 or 20 of them in the range. So they decide to gather on the main square in the number of six. So this is not 10,000 people. So obviously, it's not a rally. It's a little bit more than five, because the five is where the red line is. What these people do? they run around the main square and they read the state constitutional law. So here we are doing something which is very patriotic. I mean, senselessly patriotic in a way. You can't even find Americans doing this these days. But when you take a look at this, no, here is the police and here is the dilemma. People reading constitution looks okay. Six people reading constitution breaks the law. So ingenuity of designing dilemma action is finding the fine line where your opponent will also, you know, open kind of the paradoxic things. Now, let's move a little bit from autocracy to the daily use of dilemma action. So let's go to something which is the least political and least inspiring in the world, which is the pothole. Now, 2014, there was a governor and the mayor in Yekaterinburg, which is the fourth largest Russian city. And the guy was famous for, you know, all the footballs will be gone by October, whatever. And of course, you do these promises before you get elected, then you get elected, and then the potholes are there this year, and next October, and next October, and every October ever since. So here is the October, the anniversary of the promise, and the people of Yekaterinburg, the small group, hires the local artist. So now you have this guy who looks like a fat communist bureaucrat with big mouth. So the mouth are potholes. And around the pothole, there is a face of a mayor. So imagine you hitting that pothole and, of course, doing whatever you're always doing when you're hitting the pothole, cursing. And that's a kind of visceral reaction. To now I have a person to curse. And there is a statement saying, well, I will fix this thing by, you know, two years ago. So what the government will do, if they fix the potholes, they grant the victory to the movement. And of course, they raise it graffiti, but never fix the potholes. Welcome to Russia and have a nice day. They're probably still there. So, move there to technological invention, and the beauty of dilemma actions is that you see the creativity around the different problems in different parts of the world and Our study covers nine hundred five all the way to two thousand and nineteen, and even some really really historic actions before that you take a look at panama city it 's the Miami of the Central America with all the development, the huge buildings, and of course, streets are falling apart they are projected for far smaller business now these guys hired a PR company, Ogilvy, I think, and they come out with a solution, which looks like a hockey pack. So there is a small machine, which you can put in a pothole, when the car goes over the machine, machine tweets, welcome to 21st century. And it tweets straight to the mayor's account, quoting, oh, I'm a little pothole at the corner of Cascade and Columbia Street, and uh, I just heard the car of this old lady, fix me, fix me, fix me. Now we get to 14,000 tweets a day. And mayor County is, of course, overflown with these tweets. And the guy goes out opening factories, building stuff like that. But everybody's talking about the potholes. So what will you do? This guy fixed potholes. This is not Russia. And then you can find amazing examples. In Serbia, for example, people plant flowers in potholes. First of all, it's nice to plant flowers. You know, there are like little flags. You don't hit the flower or the pothole. And lastly, they give you the idea of the size of the pothole. In Zimbabwe, in Pulavaya, the group we worked with, they plant trees. These are serious potholes. So what will you do? Arrest people for planting a trees into potholes. Once again, go back there. We go to Canada. People celebrate the birthdays of the potholes with a cake. You go to Mexico. People fill the potholes with water and release livestock, fish in it. So when you take a look at a battlefield, this is kind of a common thing. It's kind of corruption, you know, transparency, you can name the type of struggle that we want. It's really small and uninspiring, but people, what fascinated us when we were doing this research is the way that people are using the same pattern, widely held belief. Potholes should be fixed for taxpayers' money. Politicians should be fulfilling their promises, putting it in a dilemma framework, doing a little grain of creativity, very often a humor, and doing something which puts these guys into exactly the same position. And know that there is no difference between the position where you are the mayor of Yekaterinburg in a very autocratic Russia, or you are the mayor of Panama City, or whatever is the name of the city in Canada, where you have a democracy. It's the same rock and hard place for this person. And so they work across the spectrum of issues. They also work across the spectrum of level of the social space.
0: Now, does it have to use humor? Because... When I think about historical examples, one thing that seems like it could be a dilemma action to me would be when Rosa Parks sat at the front of a bus, and the authorities had to make a decision whether or not to move this elderly lady out of her seat, force her into the back of the bus, or to just ignore the rule. And it sparked the Montgomery bus boycotts, it set off the civil rights movement, it gave them a lot of momentum. Is that an example of a dilemma action that did not use humor that was a little bit more serious?
1: Oh, there are plenty of them. Like only 30% of dilemma actions which we were examining are using humor. Uh, highly profiled activist hunger strikes, for example, they're always a dilemma action because you know what happens if Navalny dies? So you take a look at this kind of stuff. And first and best known dilemma action in the world is actually a salt march. So it's a Gandhi taking a look at everybody needs salt, taking a look at how salt is taxed, and then going after making salt in order to show the paradox of the fact that India has 4.5 thousand miles of a seashore and literally anybody can make a salt in the same time the British colonial empire is taxing the salt. And then, you know, dilemma. Shall we stay the benevolent colonizers which are doing things and, you know, In accord with whatever people of India want, which is how the viceroy wanted UK to be perceived at the time. Or we go full scale ballistic and we arrest thousands of people because they are making salt. And we pissed off the continent of at that point, more than half a billion people. There are certain tactics. What we did in our research, we compared the type of tactic with a list of Gene Sharp's tactics. So some tactics are always dilemma actions, which is really interesting. General strike, if hold on in a good quality, is always a dilemma action, because obviously if you shut down the country and the government doesn't respond, what happens? If you shut down the country, what government will do? Of course, they will look into some kind of concession because they cannot kill a million workers. Some smaller things, and especially very popular in Africa. A complicated name for a tactic, which is almost always dilemma action is called lysistratic ostracism. In common English, that means denying sex. So what happens is that you have a strave of actions that we found, like in Liberia, Somalia, several places, like there, it's very popular in Africa where women obviously have this very great sense of what they can do to make their men do whatever they want them to do. So whether this is forming a government in Somalia, where this is tackling the ethnic problems and uprising in Liberia or whatever, if women deny men or the members of the government sex long enough, they will eventually comply with the request. So once again, they don't need to involve humor. Some type of tactics are automatically dilemma actions. But once again, they work if there is a discipline in their organizing. So it's not enough to deny sex to one minister. You need to work over the whole government.
0: So it gives me the impression that almost any kind of nonviolent form of resistance is a dilemma action, because I can even think of just a protest itself. There's a dilemma. Do we lock up all of these protesters or do we do nothing? What is the choice? What really separates the idea of a dilemma action, makes it a distinct form of civil resistance? Why is it that other forms of civil resistance are not labeled as dilemma actions?
1: Oh, well, once again, it depends on how the action is structured, and it also depends on the answer. But we were looking at the several different elements that connect all of this dilemma action, one of them being a playful irony. So, once again, when you mock your president, that's one thing. When you mock your president the way he needs to respond to it, it's yet another thing to do. Then second thing is a strategic choice. So you're looking into what do you want to achieve with a tactic. And I think what makes this research interesting is that you have a lot of research into nonviolent struggle. You have a, you know, NAFCO Data set, you have a great work done by Erika Chanovet and Maria Stefan, and looking into the effectiveness of the nonviolent protests. This is the first time you are looking into the strategic element of tactics. So, you know, not all tactics are born equal. Because the question that what differs dilemma action from normal protest is whether your opponent can ignore it. So this is one thing. So there was this amazing day of rage in the United States of a day of Donald J.R. Trump inauguration four years ago, which was uh, explained as the largest single protest in American history in terms of millions of people participating in it, so people can ignore it. So take a look at the gun control movement. Every time you have a school shooting, you have the vigils and protests. Does this impact this thing? No. We take a look at the Parkland, Florida, and understand that the students decided to target Walmart and exporting goods, and all these shops where guns are sold, and present their opponent in these Thai businesses with a dilemma, whether they will lose the revenue of all the teenagers, outdoorsy teenagers buying in these shops, compared to the revenue of not putting the background checks on the desk counters when they're selling guns. So this is the dilemma. So unlike protests because somebody got shot and politicians do nothing, which can be ignored, putting a business to choose between A and B. In case A, they put the background checks, they lose some money, and probably some people will go to shops where they don't have a background checks. In case B, they lose hundreds of thousands of customers and they lose a huge, once again, lose, lose. So what dilemma actions do, what usual nonviolent action doesn't necessarily do is putting your opponent in uh, this kind of lose-lose framework. And that starts with tackling the wildly held belief. That starts with targeting what, once again, you mentioned Rosa Parks. Take a look at the civil rights movement and ask yourself why they haven't protested. Well, they did, but why it didn't work in front of the city halls in places like Alabama. Because the governor of Alabama was elected by the people who didn't want their kids to go in the same schools with the kids of color. So when you take a look, that's a wrong target. Now you take a look at the business. Why buses? Because the majority of bus consumers, were the people of color? So once again, you go back and you see the strategic framework around building the tactic, and then proposing some kind of action. So bus company has to choose where they will desegregate buses and piss off the minority of their consumers who are white, or they will keep losing money because the black people who don't have car and normally uses buses, are not using buses, but they are working to work because the buses are segregated. So once again, it is the choice in which you put the opponent which differs dilemma action from any other type of nonviolent tactic.
0: There's actually a fascinating quote from your article where you write, getting the opponent to respond to the dilemma action in a norm transgressing way is key. And I think that if we bring it back to the Rosa Parks example, It's not just the fact that they had a boycott. It's also the fact that what sparked the boycott was a choice that was going to break some kind of norm. Asking somebody who's an elderly woman to be able to change her seat feels like that's wrong. It's taken it away from just being about race and starting to change the dynamics of the situation. Because if she was somebody who people thought looked like a threat, it wouldn't have worked the same way, but she was clearly somebody that you're normally supposed to assist and be able to make more comfortable and be able to help. And they weren't doing that. They were breaking that fundamental norm in society. And I think that's what sparked not just the reaction within the African-American population, but even within some people who are white within that community started looking at the issue a little bit different. And again, it puts them into this lose-lose situation where they're not really sure how to be able to keep this contradictory norm that doesn't make sense within the expectations of society.
1: You are absolutely right. And that's a sentence from Sophia, who is really understanding this type of things really well, because she worked on psychological aspect of this. Back to constitution and Belarus. So once again, arresting the people who read the national constitution, which is ridiculously patriotic, if you ask me, makes no sense. What about arresting people for carrying the blank signs in places like China or Russia? So once again, you take a look at the civil rights movement, you move on from Montgomery bus boycott, you move on to Nashville desk lounge counter, which is the complicated way that people were calling food courts at the time. So what is the paradox, once again, to the word paradox of this situation, is that you have a mall where majority of buyers were people of color. And once again, the genius of Jim Lawson, who designed this type of action for civil rights movement, was targeting specific malls. So you're not targeting all malls. You're looking at the malls where you have power. And the power is the fact that majority of revenue, once again, public transportation, is coming from the people you can mobilize, in this case, Afro-Americans. So here we are targeting this mall, but we are not only boycotting the mall, which is your first take, you are not only picketing in front of mall, which is your second take. Once again, these are all nonviolent actions, but they are not dilemma actions in this case, but you're looking into a very narrow stupidity and paradox of the mall, which is, yes, we want Afro-Americans' money when they shop in the mall, but we won't let them sit in McDonald's. Because this is a no-go zone for black people. So now we organize the people who come in that mall, and they sit in a food court, 50 of them. And then the police arrives and takes them away. The moment the police cars leave, Jim Lawson has 50 people ready to take their places. Here comes the police. And then at some point, even the jail is full. So they counted the capacity of seats plus the capacity of jail you see the planning process here. So what it makes, it's A, first of all, plays with the paradox of the situation. Yes, I want your money in a mall, but I will not sell you a French fries. And in the same time, making a dilemma for the mall owner, because for the mall owner, this makes no sense. He wants their money in a food court as well. And then he runs to the mayor, he runs to the governor saying, oh, we need to desegregate the food court. So once again, behind every dilemma action there is an understanding as you explain what is the widely held belief and what will impact the way the issues is changed but also the clever targeting that plays very much into understanding the four main areas through which dilemma actions since once again the data show that movements that use dilemma actions or campaigns that use dilemma actions are between 10 and 15% more likely to be successful when you break this number You really see that it impacts four different elements of the things. First is group formation. Dilemma actions tend, in 92% of the cases, they tend to increase the number of the people participating because they like it and because they look like they work. The second thing, as you said, legitimacy. How legitimate is to keep Rosa Parks standing? How legitimate is to keep food courts segregated while the rest of the mall is not segregated? And how legitimate you are if you're arresting people reading Constitution, if you're arresting people organizing a toy protest or whatsoever. Then the third element, which is very important, is how it plays the fear. It is one Putin when you see him on a calendar. It's yet another Putin when he needs to arrest a snowman. You know, they arrested a person for making a snowman protest. It looks like an idiot. That's the truth. I mean, there is no, more politically correct world to explain it. And then lastly, how the movement is perceived. Because the very large part of these kind of stuff is that they attract positive media attention. And you want to take a look at the serious ones, like Montgomery Bus Boycott. You want to look at the pranky ones. But in all of these cases, the positive media attention is the essential part of the dilemma action. And then the movement is perceived In another way, and back to our recycling thing, it sparks one of the two things. It either increases the popularity and the numbers of the people joining the movement, or it inspires others to replicate the similar tactic. So when you take a look at this, when you take a look at the 101 of the No Monument Movement, Dilemma Actions has it all. They're strategic. They increase your authority. They give you positive media attention. They decrease fear or apathy because police arresting cars doesn't have authority to make you afraid they look ridiculous they are the punchline and regime wants them to be the hammer and you are afraid of the hammer but you are not afraid of a punchline
0: so you just mentioned that dilemma actions are more effective than other forms of civil resistance but they're still not 100% effective why is it that this tactic of civil resistance that logically makes so much sense that the authorities are in a lose-lose situation, that there's no way that you can't come out with some sort of victory, still fail to succeed all of the time?
1: Well, first of all, they are more successful than the campaigns that don't have dilemma actions. And that has three different answers. The first one is a strategy win, not tactics. So, you know, if the dilemma actions is something exercised in a campaign which has a wrong strategy or doesn't have the sound strategy or there is no plan or the movement failed to mobilize the numbers or there is an outbreak of violence. Obviously, you cannot blame dilemma actions on the failure of the whole campaign. Second part is choice. Your opponent sometimes takes choice to show the teeth. Your opponent is sometimes not afraid of losing the authority and your opponent sometimes makes tough choices. So take a look at Iran and take a look at what dilemma for a clerical regime in Iran, poses as if the most oppressed population in the country, which is young girls of 15, are gathering inside Madrasa, which is the religious school designed to oppress them. And they stand in front of the portrait of Khamenei, which of course hangs from the wall above every blackboard. And they are making funny TikTok videos about them as a group showing him a middle finger. So now, how this impacts the authority of the Kamnei, how this impacts the idea that women should be obedient, how this impacts the very idea of oppression being imposed on them, what they will do. Well, sometimes they choose to arrest and execute a lot of people because in the short term, they don't want to give concessions. Kamnei met with a few high school girls a few days ago, which he never did in the past, by the way, which tells you that the tactic actually worked. But take a look into this, So some of these opponents don't care about losing authority. They think that they need to instill more fear. There's also a learning curve in it. And there is also a very important part of how people portray this. And in the era of internet, you really need to do the post-production well, as well the production. And sometimes you you make just the wrong decision or you pick up the wrong target. You can take a look at the iconic action of Pussy Riot the Russian punk rock band, and then their little performance in a church where they were, you know, mocking Putin and mocking church for being in bed with Putin, both very well selected target. But because they desecrecated the church and because there is a powerful machinery which was playing the narrative in that direction, people actually didn't like that. And they actually lost the authority. So it is the thin line you walk against the opponent who learns. So once again, take a look at another great book that I would recommend everybody called Dictator's Learning Curve, written by my friend and now editor of Journal of Democracy, Will Dobson. And you see how some of these regimes are adapting to this kind of provocations. Go no further than a few months ago. You have two very different regimes on a two very different place of learning curve faced with two very different protests. So you have Iranian regime that was faced to the protests of millions of people, literally millions of people coming from all walks of life, who couldn't find their nose and couldn't do anything more clever than oppressing. And you can see the regime on the decay. They can time for a day, but there is no adaptability. And then you take a look at Master Xi, who is the master of adopting and master of the learning curve. The moment the protests against the COVID zero policy Looks like they are taking flame, he backpedaled, he accommodated. He found a way to distinguish between the political dissent and punish these people harsh. And what he says is a kind of justifying dissent, the people spend too much time in the lockdown, blah, 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 let's cancel zero policy, however many human life it's going to take after not having resistance to the virus. But obviously you see the adaptation. So when you take a look at these things, going back to your question why not all of the nonviolent campaigns are effective, but only 50% of them. Actually, the number of effectiveness decreases in the last 15 years because you have the learning curve from the opponents, especially the autocracies. So taking a look at this kind of stuff is one thing, and then taking a look at how do you need to zoom out to the wider picture. It is not that civil rights movement was effective because of dilemma actions, Dilem Actions gave him 12% edge over the other movements. It is because it has a strategy. It has a grand vision of tomorrow. It was capable to unite people of color with the people who were not of color. It was strategically aimed with certain tactics, like march of millions in places where you could do it, like Washington, D.C., where using a low-risk tactics, where you cannot really execute the people in places where oppression was high, like Montgomery, Alabama.
0: So is it better to try different tactics that might fail or even backfire? Or should people show more restraint and be hesitant to be able to try different things and experiment because if it doesn't work, it could end up with adverse results?
1: People should be reading Canvas, people should be reading Jean Shahr, people should be understanding that before tactics, the principles come. And the first principle is you need to know where you're going. The second principle is strategic and tactical planning, out of which dilemma actions are a very important part. The last principle are organization discipline. So what really distinguishes successful nonviolent movements from non-successful movements is these three things. So where the movement has a vision of tomorrow and is capable to move different constituencies towards this vision, where there is a strategic plan and then tactical plan, and where movement is capable of growing numbers and keep people disciplined, including the nonviolent discipline, which is a very important breaking line between very successful nonviolent movements and half that successful movements that are using violent tactics. Long story short... The major difference, like are there are only two types of nonviolent movements in this world. They're either spontaneous or successful. So before engaging in spontaneity, you need to take a look at the planning. You need to pick the pillars or institutions you want to target. And then you put your dilemma action slash loftivism hat and really do it well on a tactical level.
0: When you were involved in Adpour, Did you read any of the literature about civil resistance to be able to come up with some of your ideas? I mean, were these ideas that you had that were just from inspiration that you had, or did you actually learn things from books or from scholars to be able to come up with some of those
1: tactics and strategies? In Serbia, it was a mix. It was a mix of the way we were abroad because we were living in the coolest communist country of all communist countries which was defined as a Coca-Cola socialism by a famous historian, Aradino Vucetic. We read a lot. And like we knew in elementary school who the Gandhi is. We knew uh, by the secondary school who the Martin Luther King was. And uh, here, the musical, was played in Belgrade before it was played in Paris. So taking a look into all of these movements were kind of inspired we did a little bit of reading of Jean Sharp, one of his books from dictatorship to democracy was translated in Serbian. But a lot of these things we came into by ourselves. Then moving into canvas phase, the phase where we started the Center for Applied Nonviolent Action and Strategy, which is the organization I still run, and did work with people from fifty different countries. Some of them were imposing amazing dialogue action that became the part of the training. So we took this experience into the tool, and you know the tool says. What is the widely held belief? How do you design tactic around this wildly held belief? What will your opponent do and how to capitalize on his or her response? Today is probably the mix. The least, it's about people reading scholars. A little bit more is about people being trained and understanding the importance of training. Going back to scholars, there's a great study proving that educated people, training people to do nonviolent action is actually the best form of foreign assistance to the local movements, which is something my organization committed 15 years of its work. Lastly, people learn horizontal. So now in the era of internet, you can see that snowman is pissing Lukashenko, and then you replicate the snowman in Russia. So we found a lot of these replicability being spread online between the groups who don't normally communicate with each other but people are learning by looking up to somebody who was successful so yes reading will help you so read the journal of democracy and read our little book called pranksters versus autocrats training makes it even better because you have a lab and like yes man one of the iconic anti-corporate groups which is I think listed 12 times they are the masters of pranking the corporations they have their lab at NYU, which I visited a few years ago in how to make a protest funny and playful and how you use this playful irony. And then, of course, last but not least importance, record what you do, explain why it is successful, post it online. People will take it from there.
0: It feels like today with so many different organizations that are training people in civil resistance, including Canvas, that it's very different to begin a civil resistance campaign today than during the bulldozer revolution in Serbia or other revolutions before that. As somebody who's actually in this space, who's actually working with people, how much different is it for people who are conducting these civil resistance campaigns, who are launching these new revolutions after receiving this kind of training that you provide and others provide?
1: Well, first of all, training works, and there is a science behind it and a research behind it. So you never underestimate the skills and knowledge that you give to your organization, where it's given to you by an external actor like Canvas, where you're organizing like Egyptians. They went through the Canvas training, then they organized their own human resource place, training people across Egypt to do the resistance to Mubarak. However, the movements are different now so it's not only a very different work for people who train movements it's also understanding the new nature of the social movements so taking a look at how internet era changed the movements first of all the existing movements are more likely to be horizontal they tend to spread very fast across the territory and constituencies and races and religions and you can take any one of them if you want to make it americanocentric We can deal with, you know, George Floyd thing and Black Lives Matter. So there is always a trigger. The trigger spurts virally. It creates a visceral reaction. A lot of people do independent things in many different geographies or many different times, which makes this protest very difficult to predict, very difficult to repress, because you don't know where the next outbursts will be. Take a look at the Iran. And then very difficult to maintain. Because there is no central organization. So now the movements take credit for these things being leaderless, but this comes with a catch-22. Catch-22, in order to be successful, movements need to be led. They are not the random groups of people getting excited about the issue A, B, C, and immediately the change appears. Movements need vision. Movements need some strategy. Movements need some kind of leadership. Every successful movement ends in some form of negotiations. Now you know you always have this question. So you take a look at Iran. You have a millions of people, and regime is going to make some concessions. But even in the super effective case, everybody is dreaming about what comes next. Is there a vision of a different Iran? Regime wants to concede. Whom does regime concede to? Who is leading the negotiations? So taking a look at how these contemporary movements are different, how they operate in the internet era how they spread fast, how they have this amazing thing which makes people own the movement more. You take a look at the Sunrise, take a look at the Fridays for Future. People see Greta Thunberg, but people doing nonviolent direct action about the climate change in Portugal, they don't know about Greta Thunberg. They're doing their own thing. So take a look at these, and they are called Fridays for Future. So people own movements more, which is great because the more you own thing the more of your own investment will you have in the thing. But then how do you coordinate all of these things and how you don't make it fizzle and how you prevent the group of radicals in place like, I don't know, Ciel to become the public face of the BLM by having the photos of people in tactical equipment burning shit. So now, once again, back to discipline. Successful movements share discipline and organization. Organization in nonviolent movements, whatever form of organization, can be a very decentralized organization, once again, like for or Fridays for Future. It can be highly centralized organization like in a US labor movement decades ago, whatever form of organization, but somebody needs to coordinate the effort. Somebody needs to tell people what to do. Somebody needs to tell people what not to do and when not to do it. And Taking a look at this, once again, brings us back to the principle, whatever new shape of the movements you have, they will always be successful if they have vision, if they are capable of building unity, if they can build strategic and tactical plans, and if they can exercise the discipline, most importantly, non discipline, as opposed to the movements, once again, regardless of numbers, which rise up as the wave and spark amazing conversation. But instead of looking strategically at the places where they can advance, and BLM movement can advance in employing more women of color, getting equal pay for equal works, school curriculums, and they ended up focusing on the most divisive of all proposals, which is defunding the police. And then defunding the police dies even in Minneapolis. So once again, strategic planning. So regardless of numbers and the hype and the seriousness of the situation, you end up having the movement which achieved less than it could have if it could have the sound organization, the sound discipline, the clarity of goals, long-term strategy. So it is not whether you're able to mobilize the numbers. It's where there is a leadership that can utilize the numbers, turn the numbers either into the small victories like, you know, legislation changes and things of that kind, or long-term organizations back that never differed, it's not about having a strike in a factory. It's about using this strike to create a branch of labor union, which will keep workers right at the table of employers forever. That's the victory. Successful strike, it's a tactic. And you give people salary for a day, and then you fire them next week, all of them.
0: Well, Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for writing the article. Thank you so much for your activism and the movement at Canvas. Again, thanks for uh, this great conversation.
1: Thank you so much. Pleasure talking to you. And what have I tell you? Keep up looking playfully into activism. It pays off. There is a scientific proof for it now. Thanks to Sophie and Joe.
0: The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy, and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.